Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm creator producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV deputy editor Ben Travers and TV awards editor Libby Hill. Today we're dipping our toes into some politics, chatting about some exciting Peacock announcements. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but the, the emphasis you put on Peacock was pretty great. <laughs> and talking about the pitfalls and perils of reviving existing IP. Those are some good P words. That was good alliteration in that little quip. I like that too. You're on your game. It's, it's early. <laughs> Jesus. I'm having He's my... a morning person. <laughs> Secret. <laughs> He's been I up am, all night. He didn't go to bed. I am a night owl through this and through. That's why I love Watchmen so much. It is millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. Uh, Libby, you had... It's all clicker. It's Yeah, this is our super clicker episode. I should have announced that. Universal uh, Remote. The universal remote is the super clicker. What? Libby, you you had the 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 fortune of interviewing Good Maya. Fortune. Yeah, of interviewing Maya Rudolph yesterday, mere hours after Joe Biden announced his vice presidential nomination, and it was serendipitous because you were talking to Maya Rudolph about her Kamala Harris impersonation, which landed her one of her three Emmy noms Can this you, year. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She was nominated thrice. This year. Yeah. Apparently, she's the first person to ever be competing against themselves in the comedy guest actress uh, a, a, a category, I believe. But yeah, it was it was super fortuitous. Um, we wanted to talk to Maya, obviously, because of her Emmy nominations, um, but primarily because she's amazing, um, as evidenced by the three Emmy nominations. Uh but uh, yeah, it, w- it was very clear when when we were speaking that um, she was a little overwhelmed. Uh, yesterday, it, it seemed that, you know, Kamala Harris was trending and then slightly below her, Maya Rudolph was trending. Uh, everyone just was so happy that good things were happening for Maya. And, uh, and I have to say, uh, Maya was happy that good things were happening for uh, the country because she finds... Uh, she, she, like many of us, think that um, Kamala Harris is is a good step forward for for the country. And um, but it was great talking to her. She she had a lot of uplifting and moving things to say about uh, politics, but also about her time on SNL. Um, how much she loves it and how much it means to her that she has gotten recognition not only for this role, um, but but just for her work on the show. Uh, she made a great point that, you know, this was a bit of good news and we're not necessarily used to that. And so, so that kind of makes it all the sweeter. Um, but the best part is like, you could go online, you could go on our site and see me talking to her specifically about, about the VP nomination. Uh, but we have like a way longer interview coming in a couple weeks. Um, the digs digs into her her nomination for Big Mouth, into her nomination for Good Place. I'm so excited. She was so great, you guys. I will say I loved all the, all the tweets and stuff that were like uh, Maya Rudolph walking into Lauren Michaels' office, and it's like about to get paid. And I was like, I don't know if that pays that much. I think it's mostly yeah. like an appearance fee. It's an appearance fee, and then 
you you get the recognition for doing it. It does go to show like just how how much of an impact elevating a character like that with an actor like that on a show like that can have because like you said Libby like as soon as the announcement hit it seemed like the way that most people wanted to communicate their enthusiasm was through you know mm-hmm. gifs or photos or clips of Maya playing Kamala and that was just that was just that became this whole other thing about well now we're going to see more of Maya and that's exciting and it 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 just kind of built upon itself so I think there's so much goodwill towards her. I've, I've never heard a bad thing about Maya Rudolph. Um, she spoke a little bit about being cast as the judge on the good place. And she made a great point about how sometimes it's just someone even thinking you would be good for that role. That's the win. Like, like the fact that Mike sure would be like, Oh, here's this interdimensional judge who determines the fate of people whether it's good or bad like let's get Maya Rudolph because she could embody that like that's a compliment Mm -hmm. um and it is and and uh I, I don't know I think I think what makes this a little bit magic and something I hope to write about later is that it's not just that we get to see Maya playing Kamala it's it's that SNL has a not a great history with with casting uh, black women. Um, uh, they've had very few. Um, Maya is uh, biracial, so is Kamala. So so it's kind of a thing where it's this magic lineup of time where you just happen to have the perfect person to play the perfect role. Um, at a time when that easily could not have been the case. Like remember when they were trying to find someone to play. Obama because they just didn't have the kind of cast set up to 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 have a good Obama impression. It's she mentioned in your in the interview that she she auditioned. <laughs> she did Obama. do Obama apparently once, uh, but never saw the light the, the light of day. Uh, she said it was quite bad. Well, yeah. Libby, speaking of NBC oh, and it's potential struggles with diversity this might be a difficult segue but peacock announced two comedy shows they'll be released on the streamer the amber ruffin show and an as of yet untitled larry wilmore comedy program was that is that a reach the final name (laughs) ben so this amber ruffin show uh she's obviously a writer and performer known for her work on uh late night with seth meyers but she's getting a spinoff show. Seth Meyers is an executive producer, as is Jenny Hagel and Mike Schumacher. What can you tell us? You were at CTAM. Is that how you say that? C-T-A-M? Sure. How do people say it? CTAM. People... All right. You were at CTAM. What was the energy like? <laughs> oh, uh, what, what a question. I mean, what's the energy like on virtually any virtual panel? Uh, that's that's pretty much the answer. Um, I will say that, that Amber was the host uh, for for Peacock's full day of, of CTAM panels, virtual panels, virtual events, whatever we're calling them. Um, and that was great. She, she brought uh, a great consistency and, and, and positivity and, and enthusiasm. And she's just a, a wonderful person to watch, which is basically all we can say about the show at this point. Like the, the release and the, the brief discussion about it um, is, is very you know, kind of boilerplate 
information. She's going to have, they're going to have weekly episodes. Um, it's, it's a, it's, you know, focused on like, I think her main thing in the, in the synopsis was that it's focused on the best parts of any late night show, the comedy. So like, it's a little more comedy focused, whereas Larry Wilmore's might be a little more, um, issues driven. Um, but again, they're both going to be comedic late night shows. So it's not like it's, it's going to be that far removed from, from what we've seen from them before. Um, but you know, once we kind of get eyes on it, um, we'll have a, we'll have a good idea of kind of how it'll develop and it'll be fun to track that. But we've seen these people for so long on do so many different things that just knowing that they're going to have their own time to do whatever they want and have the spotlight. And I think as Larry Wilmore said in, in his statement, he was just happy to have a place in the conversation going into this election cycle and having a place in the conversation for people like this, for these, you know, incredibly talented comedians, like, like they've been working for so long and doing so well at virtually everything they've touched, you know, again, to have Larry Wilmore back is very exciting. And to have Amber get her first show is, is also just extremely exciting. Like I, I just really want to see it, you know, it's just one of those things where I don't need more, information i'm just happy it's happening and let's let's uh let's check it out when it when it hits i really like seeing peacock and and the streamers uh take the opportunity to boost uh voices that that apparently couldn't get uh, would not be granted late night spots of their own I like to see the sort of broadcast slash streamers get more into the weekly comedy late night roundup shows um, that the TV Academy seems to love so much. Looking at you, John Oliver. Um, I mean, I think I think I also love thinking about the fact that uh, maybe with more of those weekly late night shows that might inspire the TV Academy to spin it off into its own category, finally getting a better representation of what late night shows look like. Um, trying to get Seth Meyers into that category. Um, but mostly I'm just excited to have more Amber Ruffin and, and, and Larry Wilmore in my life. I think those are voices that I, I want and need to hear during this time. And Assuming they can find success, they can find an audience, they can quote-unquote prove themselves, it, it only makes them better candidates to take over other more traditional late-night spots once those openings arise. Um, it is worth asking, though, kind of just in the streaming late-night universe, you know, how this is going to work and... and, and based on kind of the problems we've seen with Netflix trying to launch similar ventures in this space. And, and so many of them have, so many of them have been good, but so many of them either haven't found enough of an audience or otherwise haven't been beneficial to Netflix that, that they haven't lasted that long. Um, so we've seen success with like John Oliver on HBO. Uh, we've seen people who are, you know, predominantly getting an online audience do well so it's just a matter of like you know peacock proving itself as a space that's welcoming to that and considering the enthusiasm amongst people who really like late night for people like seth myers i would think they'd want to seek this out and i would think it being a free platform would also be beneficial but um how it's launched and and you know in what kind of environment it's it's entered into could play a factor in kind of that early reception and and resonance that's really 
That's really true. Uh, ben, I can't, and not to put you on the spot, um, that's not the, that's not what I'm doing here, but like, where has Netflix tried this and, and kind of fallen short? The break? I'm thinking about this and, and oh yeah, I, I guess I'm thinking about Hulu and I Love You America with Sarah Silverman, yeah. which got Emmy nominations and, and still couldn't find an audience. I feel like uh, in the CISO model of things, these shows aren't the draw to like subscribe to Peacock, but hopefully while you're there, while you're there, you find them and enjoy them. Guys, in part one of what is going to be a three-part clicker, I IP wars and the clicker, the property wars, uh, the Hollywood Reporter's reporting. That's weird to say that. Uh, well, there's going to be a Fresh Prince reboot, apparently. Based on based on Morgan Cooper's viral YouTube video, uh, apparently that w- got to Will Smith's desk, they're going to make a drama reboot uh, of Fresh Prince. And there's apparently a couple of streamers that are in a bidding war over this. Ben, do you want to fill in the gaps on, uh, on Fresh Prince Part 2? No. No, I don't. Okay. I um I really thought this was a joke. I um saw it cross the timeline and the the Twitter threads and was just kind of like this can't be a real thing uh even in 2020 and and when people are this desperate for any kind of reboot and and known property, I I, I still don't believe this. Uh and then this morning Libby informed me that it was uh, at least reported as fact. I will say I did watch the, the the trailer, which is essentially just a sort of dramatic retelling of the events of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, mostly the theme song, but it's like shot very well, and it, it and I think it, it tackles some of the issues of the day, uh, but like it still references like Carlton's got the sweater over his neck, that, like jazz, DJ Jazzy Jeff is there. Well, not the actual DJ Jazzy Jeff. There's a new Jazzy Jeff. And he's got the glasses and they're at a record store. Like it has all the hallmarks of what you remember from Fresh Prince, but it's shot like R- Riverdale is a good example. Like it's a, it's a, it's, it's shot, you know, shallow focus, um, very dramatic as opposed to leaning into the comedy beats. And yet they're inviting some sort of comedic interpretation just by using this as the basis of their story. Like there's, 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 as Libby put better earlier and can put better anytime she likes, uh, the core story of, of Fresh Prince could be mapped out into a dramatic context, like like a, a, a kid with a very rough upbringing whose parents are so scared for him uh, uh, in the neighborhood that he's, that he's raised in and send him to an affluent neighborhood for his own safety and, and a better life. There's, you know, obvious dramatic resonance that can be pulled from that, Um but by basing the story in something that's so well known for being, you know, just really like the Carlton dance and like so many goofy, funny, enjoyable bits, like whenever those pop up on screen, it's very hard for me to imagine a world in which I can fully remove myself from what came before and invest in this as like in the dramatic context that it's demanding. Like it just seems like such a leap that they're asking us to make that it almost would have to play like parody of itself when it's trying to be not that. 
Yeah, I think this, the nostalgia factor is going to be difficult for people to get over because you're going to be constantly thinking about the thing that came before it. Right. I, 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 Succinctly. Yeah. If they're going to take if they're going to take the nugget of that idea, they really have to uh, lean back from the source material. You need to like recognize the things, but you can't make it neat. Like you can't make it cliche. You can't make it nostalgic. Um, in this short film, uh, there's a scene where the Will character, you know, dramatically sits on a throne and like puts this crown on, like very Mahershala Ali in, in the first season of Luke Cage, um, which was baller, uh, but also didn't have a a jazzy theme song. Um, I don't know. I'm. I, I guess it's better than a gritty reboot of the Borowitz report, but um, to that same extent, I have a feeling we're going to get more into this topic shortly. Um, but yeah, the, the, this, this rebooting of intellectual property is something we've been dealing with for a while. And it's, it's hard. Like some people do really well with it. Um, I, of course, am a huge fan of, sorry, Leo, of um, pop TVs one day at a time, <laughs> um, which which did a really great job of, of taking the 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 very basic broad strokes of Norman Lear's original sitcom and uh, reinterpreting them for modern times. I should note that Lib- Libby apologized that to me because before we started recording, I said my gritty reboot would be of Que Pasa USA, which is a show that I don't even know if it was nationally aired, but it aired in Miami. <laughs> Um, and, about? and about a Cuban family. And it's like all about uh, it's in Miami, but they speak Spanglish throughout the episode. And one day at a time essentially is doing that same thing. I mean, comedically, they're not it's not a gritty reboot. Um, just context. Right. I just figured you would tell us about it. <laughs> I figured you would. We would we would circle back to it and it would make sense. But thank you for explaining. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it can work. These things have worked. I just don't know if this one will smith (laughs) yes i mean the show that was nominated for the most emmys this year in some ways is something that is a a reboot and is doing that thing well i mean it's not well remix yes remix again taking those those kind of those kind of same themes taking the name but building something new with them it's just that when you're doing that with a very stereotypical it's like remaking alf but but making it like close encounters or alternatively about illegal aliens i don't know like it just but still but but still having alf like obsessed with cats and it's like but that's a nod like it's like true or like using the exact same puppet yeah, I hate the winks. That's the problem. In in I think it works in it works in the viral trailer, but like because it is just that thing. But like when he when they reference Uncle Phil, you already know who you filled in who Uncle Phil is in your head. Uh, in the Saved by the Bell trailer, which you talked about earlier too, Jesse comes up to a student who has a a vial of pills, and she's just like, "Are those caffeine pills?" It, it you start it's exciting. And it's, then it's more exciting, and then it's scary. And it's like, that is a wink to this thing that most of your viewers have not seen. I have 
haven't watched that, does the student then be like, no, it's MDMA, and then we kind of move on? Because I feel like we've moved beyond caffeine pills. I mean, remember Four Loco? Yeah. Uh, a lot of time has passed since Saved by the Bell. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it takes a euphoria turn. It's like, relax. It's not caffeine pills. Yeah. This is fun. Yeah, like, it, like it's like straight fucking Adderall, like, and they're snorting it. Um. I would watch that version of Saved by the Bell. Just <laughs> FYI, like the Euphoria version of Saved by the Bell. Um, but maybe, maybe this, heads up. Maybe this is a good place to segue to a show that at least one critic <laughs> thinks is handling its its bout against nostalgia well. Uh, ben Perry Mason wrapped up its first season. Well, I really like it. I think Perry Mason did a great job, and I think Perry Mason is a is a perfect example of why as flummoxed and crazy as I feel looking at that Fresh Prince reboot idea, there's at least 5% of me that has to say, I can never say any of these are impossible to make work. Like we've seen, we've seen too many of these succeed when they shouldn't succeed. We've seen plenty of them where it's like, that's a great idea. You should redo that thing. You should update that thing where it doesn't work. Um, I don't know if there's actually a playbook for this type of thing. I just know that it's in demand. Um, and with Perry Mason, there's a lot of things about it that upset a lot of diehard Perry Mason fans, or at least people who brought their, you know, their, their nostalgia, their memories, their feelings of the original series, or at least the most prominent series, um, into the show and were upset by it uh, when it when it didn't get mapped out in the same way in this new version. Um, but for me, it, it like this Perry Mason felt like exactly the kind of reboot that you'd have to make in 2020 if you're going to do kind of a period drama about a private investigator turned attorney, um, because it it took itself seriously. It it didn't it didn't just kind of embrace the the stuff that has become cliche the stuff that is is proven unbelievable the stuff that you know when i go back and watch uh the cbs version of perry mason today um i can't tolerate it because it's so slow and it's so impractical and it's so um like separated from reality that you know none of this would actually work and there is a version of perry mason that's kind of a wish fulfillment procedural but they didn't want to make that and i would rather watch this so um in the in the finale, not to not to spoil anything for anyone, but one of the things that everybody anticipates when they talk about Perry Mason, at least if you're a fan of the original series, is that the Perry Mason moment will happen, which is when Perry Mason gets somebody on the stand and, you know, through expert questioning and um, usually like a, a, a good good amount of personal investigation on his part, uh, gets them to either confess to the crime or contradict themselves so that they can, you know, they, they'll point out the real bad guy. They'll, they'll, you know, uh, break the case wide open right there on the stand in this huge dramatic moment that happens in the middle of you know, the, the climax of the courtroom case. And in reality, that never happens. Like, that's the thing that lawyers watch and they hate on TV because they, that sets an impractical standard for what people expect when they are you know, put into an actual courtroom situation. Um, and this version of Perry Mason has a character who very early in the episode like, says the words, no one confesses on the stand. That never happens. 
and they drive that point home as hard as they possibly can so that audiences aren't waiting for it in that final hour without doing it earlier in the season. So that might have, you know, thrown people, but I think it would have been hard to kind of, you know, forewarn that. And yet at the same time, they did. Like, this isn't the version of that story where that happens. This isn't, this has never been a series in which you should expect some sort of fantastic switcheroo in the courtroom. So for them to honor that and to actually honor the characters that they've built throughout the show to pay more attention to the person on trial than the person who's defending the person on trial, I thought was a very honorable move and a, a very effective one from a dramatic standpoint. So I was very happy that the the ratings have been strong and that we're going to get a season two. Let me ask you this though. And I don't, I'm not asking you something because I believe it, but I am genuinely curious, like to what extent do they owe the audience those things? Why are you using Perry Mason? Uh, why not? It feels like there's plenty there to plenty of original content there. Um, this isn't a situation like Watchmen where, where we have pre-existing characters showing up um, like legitimately legitimate uses of, of intellectual property. Um, from what you describe with Perry Mason, it sounds very much like it could have just been a detective show set in this time period and starring Matthew Rees and having all of those uh, tangential characters. Um, so if you're using the name Perry Mason to draw people in and get people's interest, how much do you owe them as far as um, giving them little nods toward, yes, this this is something that you love, that you previously had affection and expectations for? And I think that kind of points to how we can never really say ahead of time what's going to work for sure and what isn't going to work right. for sure when you use IP. Um, because like there are a lot of elements built into this that are that are directly, you know, core Perry Mason stuff. The characters themselves, um, the 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 first season is basically setting up the starting point. It's it's kind of stretching out a premise for for a season and using the case as the way to put all of these people together so that you can kind of understand how it'll move going forward. Um, but, but to me, I guess the, 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 the key point when looking at Perry Mason is that this isn't one story. This wasn't just a TV show that existed by itself. This was a series of books that have been adapted multiple times yeah. for different rationales. And this is also something that unlike say Fresh Prince, it's been 50 years, 60 years since we last really seriously took a look at Perry Mason. So to not expect any sort of update for how audiences expect to, you know, absorb that kind of show, uh, that just seems insane to me. Like to, to kind of cater to um, an older audience who wishes that they could just see the things they saw before uh, seems like a pretty irresponsible edict for me going into something like this. And um, I think that, they absolutely could have done, and this could be a good segue to our next our next IP discussion, I think they absolutely could have tried to make this an original series, quote-unquote, uh, without the name Perry Mason, with the same very basic, uh, like the same case, same uh, kind of cast of characters who go through the same story and set up the thing coming forward, and we all would have looked at it and been like, wow, that's 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 really good. It's still unbelievably beautiful. Like the, the, the direction, cinematography, set design, all of that is, is pristine. I love that part of it. The cast is great. The story is, is you know good enough. Great. I like it. I don't, whatever, but like, I'm going to keep watching. 
But then there'd be people who are like, well, this is a lot like Perry Mason. Like, why didn't they, like, shouldn't this just be a Perry Mason? Why didn't they just call it Perry Mason? They should have just done that. So yeah. it's kind of are a people, weird are people gonna watch double-edged sword oh, where you're yeah. not going to make anybody happy. But when it comes to guaranteeing an audience and getting a green light, it's a lot easier to do that these days when you start with, with something that's been successful before. Um, so to, for me, it is, yeah, a little annoying um, I'm not a huge fan of the reboot stuff, and at the same time, somewhat hypocritical because I really like this take on it. I really like the spin. So no, that was that was actually honestly, you won't accept this, but that was a, a great answer to that question. Um, Too I long, say, but a good answer. I, a little bit. You can <laughs> cut that down. Uh, I, I I will say that um, I find it the, the most upsetting thing about your answer is the idea that someone can have an entire. A season of television to set up the rest of their series like that just says to me that you started your series too early um and most people don't get such indulgences but leo do a segue well i was gonna say would anyone watch a show called toby stanton <laughs> well they could maybe <laughs> they could maybe invest some time into a better title. Uh, uh, that's granted. a pretty good name. That's a pretty good name <laughs> for a private detective. Toby Stanton. No. Listen. Toby Stanton it's no P.I. Ted Lasso. Oh, my God. That's a segue. Ted Lasso, Ben, you are currently in the process of watching for a review. Uh, Ted Lasso is a show on Apple TV Plus based on a series of comedic shorts Jason Sudeikis made for NBC's uh, EPL coverage a couple of years ago, where essentially he plays an American football coach who has yeah. to who has to go to England and become a football coach. But but in Whoa. but in watching this, like reading the synopsis for the show, obviously they had to like expand this sketch out to make it a show. It seems like they've almost entirely lifted the plot of the film Major League as the basis for the show Ted Lasso, which led to us wondering why it's not just called Major League colon football. That's such a good title. Like, I'm so upset that this is now not uh, Major League IP (laughs) utilizing that title. Um, And this is definitely another situation where you know, I don't have a good answer for why this show works in spite of borrowing so much of its its core concept from such a well-known classic comedy. Um, other than to say that it, too, updates a lot of the important elements that wouldn't, that don't play as well today. So watching Major League today... Especially. While I have you here, Ben, and you're talking about this, would you say that things get better over time? Just really want to quick, quickly get you. Oh, wow. Seems like the last two points you made about Perry Mason and Major League Part Two Ted Lasso are that because of time, they are better iterations Major of League the source Part material. Here's, here's what I'll say. I'll say Part that... Qua. Cat? <laughs> I'd say that Perry Mason 2020 is much better than Perry Mason circa, I don't know what the fuck, 1963 or whatever it was. Um, More like 1963, right? I don't think Ted Lasso is better than Major League, but 
it does make important updates on Major League. And then my, my point to you would simply be, I really don't think that a related IP adaptation uh, of Rush Hour is better than the original Rush Hour. So sticking point wow. in, in that one there. Sorry, Bill. What Lawrence. did Bill Lawrence ever do to you? <laughs> no, he did. He did nothing. Maybe there's that, no that, need to bring up Rush Hour. That, that was pretty rough. It's his fourth most well-known project, according to IMDb. I mean, it's topical as Bill Lawrence is a EP. Was he creator of Ted Lasso? Um, so the it's not are, completely off topic, listeners. No, no, no. That's yeah. That's that's a, a very good explanation that I should have made. Um, Bill Lawrence is, I think credited as a co-developer on this because I don't think they can use the word creator because it is based on those NBC sports ads. Right. Pre-existing property. Exactly. Um, yeah. Which again, like I can't imagine was the actual hook. Like that's more like they made a, 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 a test, not even a test pilot, like a test reel and then showed it to them. And we're like, yeah, we could turn this into something, but uh, like not that anybody's clamoring for, for the, for the Ted Lasso ads to come back. Um, it worked so well for Caveman, the show. It did work. That was, that's the, the case they always point to. They're always like, yeah, Caveman, such a success. So we got to do that again. Uh, anyway, I would say that the important things that, that, the reason that Ted Lasso works, one, that they very deliberately change who he is from those ads. In the ads, he's kind of a, a buffoon who is playing off that kind of mix of, of ignorance and arrogance that American men who are sports enthusiasts tend to carry, especially when they're talking about soccer, when they're just like, I get it. I know how to do this. I don't need any experience. I can show up here and just shout and scream and do whatever I want, and I'll be the most intelligent person and the most helpful person available. Um, they, they don't do that for the show. They change Ted's character to be this kind of um, incredibly positive, supportive, kind-hearted human being who earnestly believes that the best thing he can do as a coach is just make you a better person. Like he just wants to help you, you know, be the best player you can be, perform the best you can perform, but also like he really believes that if the team gels and gets along and, and you know, kind of, um, just supports one another that they'll have more success. And that mentality stemmed from him coaching students when that was like the, obviously the most important goal. And there are like little moments of reckoning that he has to deal with in the season where they push him and they're like, listen, winning is actually really important. Now we're dealing with professional sports. Like you have to do certain things that you weren't able to do before. So they take all of that into account, but like, that energy that he brings to it makes it so much more accessible and makes the show overall so much sweeter. And then the kind of important updates that they make on the major league template, because again, this is about a female owner who wants to drive her team into the ground um, because it's her ex-husband's favorite thing in the world. And she just wants him to be miserable. So she brings over Ted Lasso, who's never coached before ensuring that he'll fuck this team up even more than the already is. Um, they give her like such a spotlight throughout the entire season. Like her character is so well fleshed out. She's not a villain. She's not a, like somebody who they're, they're, you know, uh, 
putting up a, a cardboard cutout in the locker room of and removing pieces of clothing every time they win to embarrass her and to, you know, to, to go after her. She's just a broken, angry person in this very specific point in her life. And then she develops beyond that over the course of the season. And we see all these different sides of her and um, she becomes like a very essential personality within the story instead of just some sort of cartoonish antagonist. And that applies to the entire ensemble. Um, Lawrence and, and his team of writers do such a good job of kind of mapping everybody out in very quick, efficient strokes that it just becomes its own thing. Like if they, they just kind of become their own people, even though you can see kind of the, the major league inspiration within all of them, like where you can be like, ah, oh, that person's kind of that person. And this person kind of is this person. And um, this art kind of came from that idea. So it owes a lot to the stuff of, of the past, but it builds off of them smartly enough to kind of become its own thing. Ben, will I like Ted Lasso? I think you would like Ted Lasso. I'm thinking I might like Ted Lasso. It's not, it's not super funny, but it's not trying to be super funny. Like it's, it's one of those things where it's not a dramedy. It's not like it's a, a very serious show. There's, there's little quips and it's very light, and, but it, it's, it's mainly made to be heartwarming. It's mainly made to be enjoyable and you just want to kind of sit in it and enjoy it but you're not going to be cackling. So like you can't go into it being like, this is the new 30 rock. I'm going to get a laugh a second. You have to kind of go into it and be like, this is a 30 minute blend of, of Friday night lights and major league. But otherwise I think you'll enjoy it. And it's an, it's such a strange conversation to have from the viewpoint of IP because I don't think that, it, it obviously isn't pulling anything directly from major league to say, we are the new major league. Come watch us. It's not using that title or that idea to sell itself. The thing that it is based on the existing IP is so small and insignificant that I can't imagine it would, it would garner that much viewers on its own. So it just becomes another one of those Apple shows where you're like, I have no idea if anybody's going to watch this, but I kind of hope people find it. And this is just another weird world of, of, of Hollywood. It's just another like, any IP is better than no IP somehow, in some way. And you never know what's going to happen with it. You never know if it'll be good or bad. Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation and IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video Bjork talking about our TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brideson. Our publisher is James Israel. And our executive editor is Dan here. The gritty reboots we want to see are Designing Women, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, and Arby's We Have the Meats commercials. You can find us on Twitter at A Million Screens, at Midwest Spitfire, at Ben T. Travers, and at Leo Adrian Garcia. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So please leave a review and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo reminding you, as always, that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. Wasn't Hannibal the gritty remake of the Arby's? <laughs> have the Mates commercials. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs>